0: We will be spending today's morning show talking about the inevitability of growing old and what that means to grow old. And of course, not all people do grow old. Uh, There are all kinds of reasons and circumstances under which life sometimes is cut short, and sometimes tragically so. But many people, of course, most people, live into what we think of as ripe old age. And as a matter of fact, more and more people are living longer and longer. And it is important for us to have a better understanding of what it means to grow old and the wide variation in what people experience as they grow old. And uh, that is just one of the fascinating facets of this explored in a new book called Gray Matters. Finding Meaning in the Stories of Later Life. Uh, The book is a really comprehensive exploration of many different facets and aspects of growing old and what it means to age in modern America. The book is written by Ellen Lem, who is a professor of English and Gender Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee at Waukesha. And uh, she has written extensively on these matters. And I'm very, very excited to be able to speak with her about her brand new book, which is published by Rutgers University Press, again titled Gray Matters, Finding Meaning in the Stories of Later Life. Ellen Lem, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Oh, thank you so much! That was a great introduction, and it really seems as if you captured a lot of what the book is trying to explore. So I'm happy to be here to talk with you about it further. Great,
0: great. yes, I've I've really enjoyed it myself. And as somebody who now has uh, sixty candles on his birthday cake, uh, this is a this is a book that matters to me on on a lot of different levels. But I also think it's it's uh, a book that uh, could be of of great potential help, whether uh your your uh, 68 or 48 or 28 or 18 uh i mean all of us should be thinking about this for various reasons one of the things that's said early in the book uh and i don't remember if it's said by you or by the the guest who wrote uh, the forward but there are a fair number of books out there uh that would seem to be about growing old Uh, But the point is made that actually if you take a look at what those books are really about, uh, quite a few of them are not really about what this book is about. And that, in fact, quite a lot of books for aging people are about how not to age or how to escape (laughs) aging. Um, What did you want this book to be that uh, is a bit more uncommon when it comes to books written about older people?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. And I do really feel as if I created the book as being something that was against what I had read out there. Uh, And uh, some of the books that are out there are just very fact-based. And so they just will exercise a lot and save money, some of the things. And those are messages that come up too in the people that I interviewed uh, for this book. But um, besides wanting to avoid just a how-to book, I also noticed that the, some of the few books on aging that are out there, and there really is room for a lot more, uh, that they really generally fell into two categories, which were the one that you referred to about basically you don't have to age, like turn back the clock. So um, they were promoting kind of an anti-aging um, as if that that's positive, realizing that you're asking people to not go forward in time and transform. And the other type of books that were out there were really negative about how horrible this time is because the body's collapsing. They were very doom and gloom. So I wanted to take a different route. And I think looking at stories, which is What I'm doing a lot in the book, looking at the stories of the people that I interviewed, that I surveyed, but also the stories that we have in film and in memoirs, I wanted to present a more complicated and hopefully compelling picture about the possibilities of, of what happens with age, uh, while also accepting the realities that it's not always easy, but that it is a more complicated time of life, but not one that one, that person should dread.
0: Mm. Yes, and you, you mentioned early on in the book that we see more and more of what is sometimes called age anxiety. Or uh, yes. gerontophobia, in which uh, more and more of us seem to really dread uh, the reality of of growing older, and and you really see that I think as as unhealthy and counterproductive.
1: Definitely, it was funny. Um, Last weekend I was at the Botanical Gardens in Chicago and I was in the Japanese garden and there was a plant there and one of the things that the the information on the plant said was that in Japanese culture they make plants look as if they're old because old is is so worshipped and acknowledged as a rich time in life that there is a way that they actually cut plants to make them look older. And I could not help but to reflect on my own studies here and just the people in my life who I talk to on a daily basis who are maybe in middle age or younger than that. And their fear of becoming old is really kind of curious to me. And I made me want to look at the culture of like, what is going on that so many people have such fear about reaching 50 60 70 and beyond when you know another way to think about it is it's a gift to be able to reach 50 60 70 beyond and and that was pre covid now i think even more we should have an appreciation of uh, what we get the opportunities that are out there uh, with every year hmm.
0: We're speaking with Ellen Lem about her book, Gray Matters, Finding Meaning in the Stories of Later Life. I want to be sure that I ask you about this because it was a really uh, interesting moment in the book when you explained the title, Gray Matters, and the fact that you are using the word gray beyond probably the most obvious connotation, which is that we often think of For instance, the graying of America or the graying population as we see more and more people living longer and longer and and an increasing proportion of the population being uh, senior citizens. But you're not just using the word gray there, but also the word gray is used in contrast to, for instance, black and white. Explain to our listeners what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, I really fought for this title. There were several other ones that the publishers and I kind of disagreed with, and I'm really happy that this one uh, went forward because I do feel as if it had multiple meanings and it really applies for this particular book. Uh, uh, As I was mentioning earlier about the projections of aging being really positive and really negative. And I found that also in a lot of the subjects that I look at in the book, Gray Matters, when people are talking about menopause and they're talking about retirement, I also saw these very strong polar opposite reactions. And so what I'm looking at is the gray area. How can some of these aspects of aging be both positive and negative and looking at them for qualities and not just putting them in a category of good or bad because they can be both and I think that is true particularly of the subject of menopause that I talk about and also retirement and so I wanted to look at to see why is it that some people think that they are really positive, and some are negative, and it's all well, if you look at it deeply and you look at a lot of people's stories about it, you will see that it can't be put into a simple category that it is it is purposely gray because um there's too much diversity of experience with those uh, different facets to make it you know one or the other. So gray really was a perfect description um, besides, as you mentioned, that it is oftentimes what we associate with somebody who is older.
0: Hmm. You also uh, point out that, uh, and this is kind of wrapped up probably in in the that answer you just gave, the fact that we tend to paint with a really broad brush when it comes to senior citizens, that it, it's very easy, particularly when you're not part of that group, to to think of them as, as a much more homogenous group that than in fact they are. and you actually go far as, as so far as to say that as we become older, we become more unalike. I mean, uh, it, yeah. it, I mean and, and so the fact that we tend to paint with a broad brush and and make vast, broad, careless generalizations about older people and what they're like or what they uh, like and dislike, whatever, uh, it's a terrible disservice. Uh, To do that because it's just the opposite. It is a group of people that, uh, if anything, are are the least deserving of being kind of clumped together in that kind of careless fashion. Tell us more about how we become more and more unalike from each other as we grow older.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I do think that is one of the most important books in in Grey Matters is the idea of how diverse the population becomes. Well, I think that in some ways it's physical um, in terms of that there's some people who have great mobility um, as they age. I just went to visit, when I was in Chicago last weekend, my aunt, who is 96 years old, and uh, she lives in a big retirement And I was struggling to keep up with her um, because she was like running so quickly to her apartment, you know, at 96. And most people, you know, think of those who would be in their 80s um, as someone who's beholding a cane and a walker and which a lot of people are as well. But um, so, you know, physically, people's bodies are... Uh, changing in different time periods. They have certain abilities and things that they can't do any longer. Um, And it's just, so that's one of the areas um, in terms of how people's health is, you know, there's great, great variance in it. Um, There's also, you know, I mean, mentally, I do talk about um, dementia in the book. And uh, so, some people are extremely sharp, um, as my I found my my aunt to be um, in her 90s. Um, other people are experiencing memory loss. Uh, so, you know, on on that level, and I also just think in terms of how people want to be at that age. There are some people who want to be still volunteering their time, who want to be active in some ways, others who are very happy to just not be working, not getting up uh, very early. And, you know, that was really the reason why I did the surveys that with the 200 people is I really wanted to capture that diversity of experience and get away from the simplicity and the caricatures that oftentimes are an old age. And I definitely found it uh, in, in terms of what people's attitudes were about how they saw themselves. And there was great variance. Um, and this also came up in the the subject of sexuality in that some people found it extremely important to continue to try to have a sexual existence into their into their deep into their senior years others were very happy to say goodbye and you know shut the door on that aspect and so those are just some of the areas that i saw a real variety in terms of uh, what people experienced and what they wanted for their later years. Hmm.
0: And, of course, your book uh, shares some startling statistics, even though we've heard a lot about this. I have still found myself kind of shocked at some of the numbers that you shared in terms of how our demographics, uh, particularly here in the United States, are tipping more and more dramatically towards an older and older population, and of course, as that trend continues, uh, we're going to see this wide variation probably widen out still. I was especially startled by the statistic that uh, between the years 2010 and 2050, the number of people over 90 will quadruple. Uh, That changes everything, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely. So we definitely need more more books and more treatment of this subject since it will be our population. And I think that we're going to have to change and accommodate as a society looks really different. Mm. Um, we've gone from a extreme youth culture revering everything that is associated with youth to hopefully one that offers you know, rich possibilities and inclusiveness for the majority of the population who will be you know, over 65. Hmm.
0: So we should make sure that people understand how your book is shaped and the fact that uh, you want to share a, a much richer and wider variety of stories about aging. Than uh, we sometimes are are given, particularly in you know kind of pop culture and in the the myths that we create about what it means to grow old. and And so, in addition to drawing from the worlds of, for instance, literature and film and television, you also did a survey uh, of what turned out to be uh, uh, over two hundred seniors. Uh, tell us more about this survey and who these seniors were and the kind of questions that you posed to them.
1: Okay, yeah. Um, I developed a survey with my mom, who is a retired psychologist, who's 84, and so that was really important to me that I didn't want to make a mistake that I think so many people do, which is to underestimate the abilities and gifts that that people still have when they're in their 80s. So my mom helped me design the the survey and it did have a few changes over time. Um, We asked questions about um, people's how they socialize, where they live, if they're happy with their living arrangements. We also asked questions about uh, what advice they would give to their 20-year-old self, Um, asked about their mood each day, Um, whether they were still working, uh, is money a worry, um, their fears. So they were pretty open-ended questions that allowed people to, sometimes people gave me a couple paragraphs on them, sometimes I got one-word answers, so there was a lot of um, variety in terms of how responsive people were. And in terms of who took the survey, so I was very open in terms of who took it? I just said they had to be over 65. Uh, the, pa- the survey was submitted in paper so that people who were not comfortable with a computer would have access to it, as well as there was a link that was shared. Uh, so we used a method that was called like the snowball method, where ICE gave the survey, but then people gave the survey to other. People, so that it went out into the world without my knowing exactly uh, where where and who was d- doing it because uh it was an anonymous survey, of course, and that people could be on it. so I do know it reached California, I know it was on the east coast uh, there obviously a lot of people uh here in the Midwest did it as well, and so that was sort of the how we set it up and Um, You know, the answers were fascinating. People really shared with me a lot of their experiences and I was really moved by those and wanted to incorporate a lot of the stories into Grey Matters as much as I could because I felt that those voices were going to be important. Mm -hmm. This was not going to be a book where a bunch of gerontologists were just going to be arguing over how best to age. I wanted those voices of experience to come through.
0: Right. At one point in the book, you talk about how there are way too many books about senior citizens that do not contain the voices of actual senior citizens who know better than anybody what it means to grow old. Um, one question about your survey, you yourself, at least to some extent, kind of maybe lament the fact that your group of 200 plus seniors is is actually not a more diverse group. It's a very white group and in other ways uh, do not represent kind of the full swath uh, of experience that probably would have been ideal. Can you just tell us a little bit more of, about that and how hard you tried to, to, to yeah. make it uh, a, a more representative survey of, of, of seniors across the country?
1: Yeah, and I will say this. I mean, I do think it was economically diverse, and I did see that because of the questions about money. I mean, there are people who were, who were broke, who were needing to rely on their children for money. There were people who said, "I think I have enough savings. I have about you know half a million dollars, but I'm not sure." You know, so they were. So I do want to say that that I did recognize that the there was a lot of variety in terms of the economic background. But yeah, I wish that I had uh, more experiences of people uh, Native Americans. Um, I wish that I had more uh, African-American and uh, Latina who did this survey. And um, part of the way that I did, I was able to get some is by asking people to share it with with their communities. I have colleagues um, from different ethnic backgrounds, um, Asian-American and African-Americans, and so uh, I did ask them, not only did they share it with their own parents and sort of almost help them do the, the survey if they were not able to do the technology of it. In some cases but then they shared it with other people uh, who their relatives were friendly with or other relatives so um, yeah so it's difficult I did also reach out to different community groups um, in different areas Um, so um, by living in Wisconsin here um, I live in Waukesha, which is fairly homogeneous. Um, we do have a, a strong Latina population. Um, so I worked with the YMCA, uh, which, you know, as opposed to just submitting it to a um, you know, the Princeton Club or something, which would just have uh, more of a, you know, smaller demographic. And so um, the survey did go to the different exercise groups from people in the Y, and the Y is a very open-ended, inclusive place um, here. And then I also did that in several community centers um, in Milwaukee. So, yeah, it was difficult uh, to get it. Also, I get I had students who would submit the, who would bring the survey to different places that they le- that they lived, and so did try to get outside of my own little world here. But um, because I could not control the survey enough through the snowball method. Uh, it had a life of its own at some point. But uh, yeah, so more diversity would have been helpful because of some of the differences that I came across in the research about aging um, for different minority groups.
0: Sure. That being said, the fact that you also draw from literature and film and so on and uh, and have been clearly very careful to Draw upon a a wide array of of experience that that in and of itself is at least some compensation for the the matter of the survey and and overall I think the book is 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 very rich and uh, and 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 helpful on all kinds of levels for those of you just joining us I'm speaking with uh, Ellen Lem about her book Gray Matters Finding Meaning in the Stories of Later Life One thing that uh, was an interesting observation uh, that you make is that. Uh, at some point somebody wrote a book about aging which coined the phrase successful aging Uh, and this is this was basically one of those how-to books about how to age successfully and I suppose the presumption would be that uh, by aging successfully one is likely to be happier and more fulfilled or whatever as as you age if you are able to do it successfully but you say that, that this is a notion that has been challenged quite a lot, in part because uh, it it seems to be a phrase that is oblivious to the reality out there of the tremendous inequality amongst senior citizens. Tell us more about this.
1: Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. Uh, I was surprised that people did not realize that that is a dangerous term. Um, I, at some point in the book, I talked about I joined a group that was looking at co-housing uh, here in Wisconsin, um, and so I, the topic of of successful aging was in the the textbook that we were using for the class. And so I was the first one who brought up like, well, you know, this is a problem, problem. And everyone was, like, what do you mean? Like, of course we'd all would want successful aging, but I was able to do a presentation for them to show them that it is a slippery term and it's a dangerous term um, for a lot of different reasons. Some of which I bring up in, in the book. Uh, so as part of the problem with successful aging is that it, is oftentimes um, something that is, that is easier given for people who have money. Uh, you know, if you're a successful ager, you are joining a health club, you maybe work with a personal trainer, you know, you go to spas. So there's a lot of, of it that feeds into our commercial culture uh, that if you want to look like the the people on the covers of a successful aging, you know, who are finally manicured and you know look very upscale, then you know you do need to have some money in order to do that. Um, I think some of the other problems with the idea of successful aging is that it disregards luck. Uh, it makes it seem as if people can do everything to. Be a successful aging person or not, and it disregards the fact you know what about the person who who just fell on their way to walk, walk their dog? They got tangled in the leash and then had to spend you know six months in rehab and things like that, or had a had a stroke and lost their ability to speak so would we feel comfortable saying that they're not successfully aging? And so, it really is a is a slippery term. Um, it is much harder for different minority groups that have uh, have their own health issues, or also maybe uh, struggling monetarily to meet this expectation. So. I like all kinds of alternatives to that term to make people use as their barometer of whether or not they're aging in a way that they feel comfortable. Hmm. Uh,
0: I think you prefer a term that is coined by uh, an author that I greatly admire and who I've had on this program, actually, Uh, and I'm, I'm referring to Atul Gawande. And yeah. um, I interviewed him about uh, another book uh, other than the one that you uh, quote. I interviewed him, uh, uh, well, I'm, I, I'm not sure which book of, of his that I uh, interviewed him for, but he has written one called Being Mortal, A Medicine and What Matters in the End. And apparently in that book, he, he coins the phrase, uh, meaningful old age, which I think right. you're uh, much more comfortable with than successful aging.
1: Definitely. Yeah, I, I and that's exciting that you were able to to um, talk with Atul Gawande. And I really did find his book on the being mortal inspirational to my own um, because he does bring in stories and research and, and his own personal accounts with his father's later years. So it was a really good model for me that – one could write a book that was uh, contained a lot of research but also had people's personal stories, um, both his patients and his own experiences as well. And yes, I do think that is a much better term to age meaningfully because that allows people to come up with their own determination and not have some kind of societal guidelines that you could check off. Yes, I'm I'm still working and I'm, you know, 75, so I must be successfully aging. Yes, I'm exercising every day. So that is sort of an external criteria and the aging meaningful, meaningfully, I believe people can make that determination for themselves.
0: Hmm. Um, Early on in your book, you quote somebody, uh, the author of a book that is one of those kind of darker, more pessimistic books about aging uh, I think the the title of his book is "Losing It," <laughs> but 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 in that book, in a brief ray of sunshine, uh, that author apparently says it is better to be old now than it ever was. Um, explain whether or not you agree with him, and if you agree with him, in what ways is this a good time to be old?
1: Yeah, I'm glad that you found that Little Ray of Sunshine in then otherwise very depressing book that I'm still hoping was supposed to be comical uh, mm-hmm. because otherwise I thought, oh, you know, this is really, really one of the darkest views of aging that I had come across. So um, I do think it is a good time to to be growing old. I think that there is growing awareness of the... Uh, possibilities for old age um, in the section on gender and gray matters. I talk about um, the artwork of the, of artists. So I include some of the the art from uh, an artist, Louise Bourgeois, who uh, was doing fantastic. I think some of her best work into her late nineties. Uh, and so I just don't know if like five, 10, 15 years ago, People were aware of the possibilities. I think that they might have had a much more stereotypic idea. You know, the, people see when the retirement age is, so they think, oh, "Okay, I'm in my I'm in my 60s. I'm coming up in retirement." And I just don't feel as if people think that way anymore. Um, in the work chapter, I talk about how the fastest growing population of workers are those who are in their 70s and 80s right now. Um, So I think that that people are slowly throwing off the expectations that certain ages have certain criteria or restrictions on them and they're seeing the possibilities. I think our culture is slowly also doing better. Uh, There are a lot of TV shows and films that are um, showing people re- leading rich lives, and I think that that's really important for people's ideology. There used to be a lot of comedies about old age. Um, I was just having a conversation with my mom about Golden Girls, and you know, she didn't want to hear anything negative about the Golden Girls, but you know, one of the things I came across in the research is that uh, a lot of the shows in the past about old age were comedies were, and were sitcoms, So they really didn't go very deep, and they just made people laugh, and sometimes they feel like they were laughing at the characters, not necessarily with them. So uh, I think that those are some of the ways in which I see this as being a better time. I think one area where we still need some catch-up are advertisements. I think advertisements still are back in the, you know, three decades ago ideas. I don't think that they're very progressive. There's a commercial out now about uh, a grandson seeing their grandparents in the closet, supposedly getting some kind of um, something they need for washing. And so he's like horrified to see that his grandparents were in the closet. So that you know, reaffirms this idea that older people aren't supposed to be sexual and that it's gross. So, uh, advertisements need to catch up, but, um, some of our other cultural venues are doing better, I think. Mm.
0: Your book explores all kinds of different facets of this experience from the, the relationship between senior parents and their adult children to, uh, understanding memory loss, to whether or not to work, to the differences between men and women, matters of intimacy, and, 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 and so on. Um, it's, so it's, it's a rich book that ranges far and wide, and there's lots of different things to talk about. One of the most interesting observations, I think, that was made uh, in your book is uh, an observation about loneliness, the reality of loneliness in the lives of of many seniors by no means all maybe not even most but for many seniors this is a very difficult sad reality that uh, otherwise undermines what 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 might be happy years and one of the observations you make in your book is that loneliness is one of the hardest things for us to talk about because there is a stigma attached to it in other words many people find themselves really embarrassed to admit that they are lonely can you tell us more about that and 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 just how serious a problem you think this is particularly amongst uh seniors
1: yeah i'm glad that you brought that up yeah, I was actually shocked to learn about the health aspects to it. Um, a recent statistic I came across was that loneliness is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So if ever a person needs sort of a stark reality reminder about really how, how toxic, I mean, deadly it can be. And so I'm glad, too, that you brought up the the part that I do touch on in the book about uh, it being embarrassing to talk about and there being a shame associated with it. And this I really saw a lot in the survey responses. You know, I did ask about people if they had their adult children and if they were satisfied with how much they saw them. And I would say it was almost universal that those who had adult children really needed to see them more, wanted to see them more, and were really resistant to speak up about it. And most said, "Yeah, I know they're living really busy lives, um, but, you know, dot, dot, dot. And so, you know, one of the things I'm really hoping that comes up through this terrible pandemic that we've all been experiencing is, experiencing is just a little bit of awareness about what what isolation feels like. Um, I think that a lot of the things that um, many seniors feel like loneliness, it's really hard to be truly empathetic unless a person has experienced it similar to themselves. Um, I know I've Guilty of it as well. Um, I have a lot of eighty-year-olds in my family, and uh, I always thought, wow, they should just enjoy their time, you know, just read books and go to the go to the gym. And before this project, that was my idea, without really recognizing how how essential to their being it is to have that contact and something that may help people think about it in terms of. Um, having that awareness, I mean, I talked to several seniors who say they may not speak once all day long. They just may not, and that can happen for three or four days where they just actually don't hear their voice because nobody calls, there's nobody to visit, uh, and so I think that's really an area that we can do better. And I think we have. I think that that COVID has brought out. Some alternatives of people reaching out there where you can get a phone call every day and people are writing letters to those living in some senior housing and so uh, and I think that families are using zoom um, my my teenagers say we've never had so much contact with our extended family before because we have these now regular zoom um, you know with my uh with my eight year old dad so Uh, I think that those are some some positive changes in this area, but I think a lot more needs to be done.
0: In in, uh, something else that is related, but kind of tangentially, uh, one of the matters you explore in this book is that while there are certainly those families where uh, love and affection and openness flows freely in both directions and... uh, and the grandparents or great-grandparents are very much loved and valued, uh, there are plenty of other families in which, for one reason or another, estrangement has occurred. And sometimes estrangement that has lasted for years, maybe even decades, and then when the parent reaches uh, old age and uh, and maybe at some point is really in need of help from their children, uh, some sort of reconciliation uh, ends up being at least attempted and sometimes accomplished, but uh, I really appreciated that your book was uh, includes this painful and sometimes really complicated reality in the lives of of some seniors.
1: Yeah, I think it was really important. I mean, this chapter was one that I was really proud of as one of the first chapters that I wrote um, in Grey Matters on adult children, and I really wanted to capture uh, people's varied experiences and yes they're for every family where uh, everybody loves each other multi-generation it's just a big love fest there are so many other families where there are lingering resentments that are between the adult children and their parents uh, issues that never got resolved and now there are subsequent generations being brought in and it's really difficult and I don't feel like there is a right way to advise people. There will be those who will say, Oh, forgive and forget and that was one of the things that I pointed out in the book was that seniors are often wanting their adult children to to you know, take the broader view to forgive and forget because that is something that oftentimes older people have an easier time with of letting go of the past but for a lot of people uh, those resentments and those complaints they they have been building up over the years and uh, they're very difficult for them to get rid of and I think it's really difficult for anyone to just say you know you must get look at your frail parent um, you must now, you know, give them a big hug and make up uh, when there's been a lot of history between them, and uh, it would be ideal if that could happen. But I do want to recognize um, in the book that it's not always possible that, that. some of that resentment over the years uh, is just really really great. And, you know, I thought it was interesting that some of the seniors that I interviewed talked about that they would have done their child rearing different had they known, you know, Mm -hmm. that they just didn't, they thought they were doing the best they could at the time, but they now think that they could have done better.
0: Right. Mistakes are made and sometimes they have painful and long lasting consequences. And indeed in this chapter, you even explore in a sense, what is the polar opposite when some seniors experience somewhat intrusive behavior from their adult children. That is well-meaning <laughs> adult children who want to help but perhaps help too much or in a way that might be inadvertently demeaning. I mean, it's it's really interesting to think about some of those complications. Uh, before we run out of time, I want to give you a chance to uh, talk about uh, some interesting observations in your fourth chapter, which is about, it's titled, Understanding Memory Loss. And uh, it really helps us, first of all, understand that Memory loss is not inevitable. and right? also memory loss does not always occur in, in the same way. But one thing in particular I want you to, to, to uh, focus on is uh, an observation you make about how uh, the the literature that is out there uh, about dementia, so much of it focuses actually on the caregiver rather than on the person experiencing, memory loss or dementia, and what it is like to, to have that as your own reality, as the person with dementia versus the, love, the, the loved one who is caring for you and dealing with the consequences. I'd never stop to think about that, but I think you are absolutely right. Uh, uh, tell us more about why you think it is important for us to know more of the f- kind of first-person accounts of the experience of dementia.
1: Okay, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up as well. Uh, Yeah, I think that the problem is that part of the reason why there's so much fear and dread around memory loss is that a lot of the accounts that we get are from the person who has been doing the caregiving, so many accounts, um, you know, literary and nonfiction ones. And as a result, we see the Feelings of like burden that's the word that comes up of like having to care for this person and yet um, the research shows that there's a lot of differences between the person what the person is going through who is having memory loss versus the caregiver when they did surveys in terms of like quality of life and that the people who were actually experiencing dementia did not have as many or nearly as many negative experiences about what their life was like. And so I do think that it is important to get at the texts that are out there by people who were actually having um, dementia, but were still able to write about and um, in other art forms uh, express what their experiences were like, and that was why in that chapter I included several accounts. There's a book by Richard Thomas who um, really beautifully talks about what he feels his brain is like. I think there was like, he sees things through a gauzy curtain was one of the expressions. So, um, yeah, I think that it's important to have more accounts of people who are going through this themselves? Who don't see it necessarily in only dire terms? I mean, yes, to be cut off from one's former self is is a horror that a lot of people experience. You know, are are terrified of with good reason. But um, knowing that there are still also ways to have fulfillment um, even with dementia. And that was one of the things I really wanted to bring out in this experience and that people still feel, feel love, that they go through so many of their same emotions um, and that they don't always see this as to be a worst case scenario for themselves if one focuses on the people themselves and not just on the caretaker's perspective.
0: Right. That sometimes uh, dementia means, first of all, a falling away of responsibilities and of worries. And sometimes dementia means you are reunited, if only in your mind, with loved ones who have been gone for many, many years and many other ways in which uh, that is uh, a surprisingly happy experience. Uh, f- for the person who is caught up in dementia, not by, by no means not always is, is dementia experienced in that way, but we need to be careful not to make simplistic assumptions about what it means to, uh, to have one's life uh, living with progressive dementia. It is, uh, these are stories that are worth hearing in the first person.
1: Exactly.
0: Your book, of course, explores much more than uh, what we have had the time to uh, talk about. And uh, I especially appreciate in the afterward an observation about how some of the phrases about passing the torch to a new generation that one heard in uh, the most recent presidential campaign uh, also speaks to sometimes the dismissive attitude that we might have about people Uh, later in life. And uh, I I found myself again and again kind of rethinking my own assumptions, and I'm sure many others will experience the same thing as they read your book, again titled Gray Matters, Finding Meaning in the Stories of Later Life, published by Rutgers University Press and the author uh, Ellen Lem. Professor Lem, I really appreciate you uh, giving the world this fascinating book, and I enjoyed uh, speaking with you about it today on The Morning Show. Thank you so much, and best wishes to you.
1: Okay, thank you so much. I loved your questions and could tell that you did a really astute reading of what I was trying to get across. So it was a pleasure talking with you about it.
0: I'm glad you enjoyed it.